It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is when we take some time to speak with a panel of award-winning journalists from the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm your co-host, Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good panel. Today, we have Brianne Letta, who is a staff writer at the Times Review Media Group in Riverhead in the North Fork. Hey, Brianne, how are you doing this morning? Good, thank you. Good to have you here. Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of RiverheadLocal.com. Hey, Denise. Hey, Joe. How are you doing this morning, everybody? Good, good to have you here. And one of our own, uh, Annette Hinkle, who is the Arts and Living Editor at the Express News Group. Hey, Annette. Hi, Joe and Bill and Denise and Brianne. Fresh back, back working from our uh, office in Hawaii, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm going to have to see about opening up an office there so the rest of you can all come and uh, and work out there, too. So the amazing way that we work these days, it's, it's changed so much in the last couple of years. It's, it's awesome. Um, so let's dive in. I, I actually want to start with Denise. Um, you guys have been doing some you've been following this story since it happened. And you had an update this week on the fatal fire in Riverhead that happened late last year. What, what can you tell us about your your new reporting? Yeah, well, we did a lot of digging into the town records um, about in connection with that building where um, five people were in five members of the same family were killed in um a third floor apartment. They were trapped up there. Uh, it was a fast moving blaze and the people on the first floor and second, the two apartments on the second floor were able to get out. This happened uh, November 16th. Um, but these five folks were trapped in the third floor apartment. And so we just, you know, we did a bunch of foils. Uh, someone, another uh, resident in the community did foiled for some other things and shared those documents with us, which uh, helped us kind of fill out um, the story with uh, records from uh, the assessor's office, which I hadn't thought of uh, foiling. But um, and what we discovered is that this third floor apartment did not have a second means of egress, um, which um, state law says is required, and uh, the state building and fire codes say is required. And so we then did a little more digging and interviewing to try to find out um, why that was um, and if that was legal, you know. Um, and uh, the state, I don't know if you've ever tried to like make heads or tails of the state building a fire code. It's like, uh, it's incredible. But um, talked to a lot of different people. And um, uh, the town attorney uh, said that there's, you know, there, because of a, a letter of pre-existing use that was written by the build, a building uh, department employee, a permits coordinator in 2009, the building was considered um, a pre-existing use. And so um, they wouldn't be looking into if there was a, a second means of egress in that apartment uh, when <clears> they, uh, because now, again, I should have back, back up a minute. They've been issuing rental permits for that apartment, the town, for uh, years. Um, but when you go through the, the records and the history of the records, you find that uh, at a, uh, various points in time, 
the building department and the code enforcement, the code enforcement people in the town um, sent letters saying, you know, this you can't you can't occupy this third floor. It has to revert to storage. There's no, you know, it's illegal, oh. you know, order so to the, remedy this. That, the the town thing. had raised the issue that. Yeah. And then it turned out when I dig a little deeper that there was a letter of pre-existing use written by that same building department employee in 1997 that said it was a three family house. So that begs the question, if it's a th recognized as a legal three family, which is the apartment on the first floor and the two on the second floor in 1997, how did it become an, a, a legal, a pre-existing four family apartment in 2009? And hmm. you now the 2009 letter said that it was a four family residence prior to the adoption of zoning in 1965. So that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, it can't be three family, but then in 2000, in 1997 and then 2009 be a four family. Um, Let me ask you this, Denise, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when they talk about pre-existing non-conforming uses of buildings, it's usually they're talking about larger things like, you know, this can be used as an office because it's pre-existing. It, was an office before the zoning came in so it can be used as an office i would think that safety rules would trump that though right well and and that seems to be what the state law and the state building code say and uh i i we spoke to an expert a fire investigator uh who's not you know even on long island but um, you know, which I did that on purpose. Um, but um, and that's what he said. Um, you know, the town saying that, well, it was pre-existing, so we don't like we respect that, I think were the words that he used. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know that that holds water. I think certainly if, if, it, if nothing else, it's a gray area for sure when it comes to safety. Um, but you know, there's still this conflicting documentation in the town's records. So um, I got in touch with that building permits uh, coordinator who um, wrote both of those letters like, and asked her, how did it become a pre-existing prior to 1965? It was, according to this second letter, a four family. And I, there were no good answers, you know? I mean, I said, why was that second pre-existing letter even written? There, I didn't, the foils didn't turn up any like applications for anything like that. Um, and no good answer. Like, I, you know, I, that's still a mystery. I mean, this is a long time ago. She could legitimately not remember, but she said things like, you know, well, I probably spoke to some people who had memories of that. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's not how you do a pre-existing use letter. Like I know that, you know, having applied for them on behalf of clients in my past life, that you need to, you know, there's an application, there's affidavits, there's utility bills, things of that nature. It's just not, oh, somebody told me that they knew somebody that lived there. And, um, you know, and when we, I, I don't we know. Talk about, then, when we talk about second means of egress, I mean, that's the whole nature of like fire escapes, right? I mean, that, yeah, that's... I, the, the code is pretty specific. I mean, there has to be a, uh, you know, the, the main stairwell has public stairwell, there has to be a second uh, independent stair staircase, basically, or a fire escape. Um, and, you know, that 
didn't exist here. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, this goes back a long time. And as I said, there's a lot of inconsistencies. I won't get into all of the details, but there's a lot of inconsistencies in the town's files. And I, um, you know, we put a lot of time and effort into this and trying to sort through this stuff and understand it. And it's, um, you know, it's, it a, it's a reminder, Denise, that, that there's a lot of stuff out there in the public. Right? I mean, you, you've done you did this story basically just off of FOIL requests and looking at what exists in the public record, right? I mean, it, that that a lot of times those things, the the answers are out there, but they're just buried under just layers of bureaucracy. And sometimes it really pays to go deep diving. And it's it, 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 to, it totally does. And I think that the, you know, the, um, the FOIL uh, requests sometimes raise questions that need to be asked and answered. You know what I mean? They may not have the answers, but, you know, when when you have the same town official um, who works for the town today, unlike this other the other person I was just talking about who retired, you know, saying, "Oh, this was pre-existing," and that same person, you know, twenty years ago wrote up a violation on this building, and said, "You know, the third part, third story failed. There's no CO for this. You can't, you know, live there." Like, what changed? Um, two weeks after he wrote that report in 2009, this letter of existing use appeared. Um, so I, I don't know. And then, of course, you know, the building department in Riverhead had a fire itself. And the building, you know, when I foiled their records, I got I only got the 2009 letter of existing use and a CO for a porch repair that happened to, at this house. And um, that was in 2010. That might be why she got the pre-existing use in 2009, but they can't say. And they don't have any other records in the building department because of a fire in the building department. So, so, I, you know. so if they have a, I'm, I'm, so if they have a pre-existing use, that excludes them from the need to have a, a rental permit. No, no, or, no. Or, uh, they okay. still have to get a rental permit, and they're still subject to inspections. But the town is saying because it was a pre-existing use that predated the, the town's zoning. Like you right. know, that's what their pre-existing use letter says. So. I'm not even sure how relevant that is overall, but, you know, because it was a pre-existing use, they don't even look for things like egress. They just like yeah. check the smoke detectors. That seems they a got little the problem. permit, right? Yeah. They, got the permit. they got the permits that they needed. Yes, this along. woman got permits for like, you know, about 20 years running that we know of on for that third floor apartment after getting these violations too. So, I mean, it really is, um, if nothing else, they need to kind of clean up their record keeping. Um, but Denise, do you think that there's other apartments like this in Riverhead still where people are living in third floor places? with Well, the, the, the town, the town's code enforcement investigator uh, told the town board last week that this was the only one that the town knows of. Um, so that may be like the, this was the only one that it was actually had that actually had a permit. Um I don't know, you know, and I mean, it's not even just like rental dwellings or, or apartments of, of any kind. It's like a living area, you know, a third floor cannot be converted to a living area without that second means of ingress. So you can't like turn it into a den or a playroom for your kids or anything like that, because <clears throat> it's considered a fire you know, safety issue because there's no if there's a fire that blocks the stairs, which is what happened here, um, you know. That's really interesting. I, really you know, two, 
Two things come to mind, Denise. The first is that we spend a lot of time as local journalists reporting on zoning issues. And I think, you know, people who who don't read the the papers or read the websites um, don't necessarily understand why we do that. And I think this is an example. These these are the things that matter and they really do show up in in everyday incidents, including some of the, the most tragic ones. This fire killed five people in, in November. And, and, you know, it's a, it, it does boil down in some ways to a zoning question and how the zoning was enforced and whether or not that has an impact on it just demonstrates why these, these questions are important. But the second point I wanted to make, if I can just make it about us for a second, I have to tell you, this, this goes to what I tell people all the time is on the East End, the news organizations that we have here. I mean, in, in many communities, a fire like that uh, uh, the local newspaper, if this happened in some places in different parts of the country, they would report the news and then move on. Um, I just tip my hat that you're continuing the digging and 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 taking a closer look at this. It's not something that happens in, in every community. And I think it's so healthy that we have such a great group of local journalists who, who do this kind of work. So, you know, it's this is the this is the hard part of the job is sort of sifting through documents and 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 trying to piece together you know bits of a of a puzzle right that's 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 a big part of the job it absolutely is and especially when you look at the documents in question you know a lot of things are just sort of uh you know almost undecipherable and you know then the the assessor's cards and you know they have codes and things and you got to look everything up i mean it was it was quite a puzzle um, and we spent a lot of time, you know, doing it. But I have to say, more than anything else, it was um, emotionally draining for both of us, you know, living with this because you now the past, I don't know, however long we've been dealing with this. But you know, because you just come back to well, those people died. You know, they were there. They were all, in, from what I've heard from people at the scene, they were all in one place. Um, they couldn't get out. And um, I don't know, that's just, uh, you know, and I, you know, and that's it. Like, I, I don't, I think the, the landlord seems like, you know, tried to do the right thing. You know, I mean, the permits were expired when this fire happened and they had expired in early 2020. COVID happened, things were shut down and, you know, everything was all, and then she apparently had some health issues. And so, she did not have the permits renewed, um, but you know I'm not. I don't. I don't know that. You know, it's an know, important point. But, it's a. Yeah. It's an important point to stress here. You you would love to have a bad guy here yeah. that you could point to and say, you know, hey, this is this is the person. It doesn't sound like that was the case. It just yeah. sounds like it was it was circumstances. But it 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 does demonstrate why those kinds of, of uh, code it, enforcement it, issues. It, it points to, 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 to perhaps the changes need to be made with this pre-existing um, you know, policy and, and not looking at egress and, you know, and that type of thing if, if it's pre-existing. Like you said earlier, Joe, it's, I mean, it's a safety issue, not a zoning issue. And, and, and I, I, I so, find it hard to believe that the town would you know, the, I mean, if, if that's the policy, if that's the law, OK, but then maybe this points to to a change that needs to be made to to that policy into that law. Like you well, said, a, no- a great segue. Thank you, Bill, because I should, 
only fair to mention we do in the story as well that um, the town board is now considering they're going to have a public hearing, actually. They're, I'm sorry, I think we're really going to set a public hearing at their next meeting for the first meeting in April uh, on changes that have been proposed, uh, uh, brought to the table by Councilman Rothwell, um, Ken Rothwell, who, um, and, and, those, and that's part of what he's proposed that, you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, um, it's got to have, if it's a third floor rental, it's got to have a second means of egress period. And he goes a step further and says, if there's a third floor rental um, or anything with three, uh, three families and above, um, buildings need to be sprinklered. Um, yeah. I'm sure that's going to cause uh, a ruckus. And I think that's going to be controversial with building owners. And, you know. and yet you see what the downside is. I mean, you know, this is yeah. about saving lives in a lot of cases. And, you know, it's it's tricky because can you imagine if you're the code enforcement officer and you go into an apartment and you say, well, this has been an apartment for 25, 30, 40 years, whatever it's been. Um, there's no fire escape. What am I going to do? Throw this family out of an apartment because there's no fire escape. But this is this is why it matters. And, and um, unfortunately, it's just sort of a, a reminder to everybody. Uh, maybe the good that will come out of this is that uh, they'll, they'll tighten up those codes and put safety first, because that, that does seem to be important. Yeah, it's also, I, I mean, think about how many people are living in places like that, though, because it's so expensive out here. Right. You know, that's the other thing that's not really being addressed is the lack of affordable housing. It's like, yeah, I mean, you make a good point, Joe. It's like, do you toss this family out on the street? because of a safety issue, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's probably a lot of places like this that are a little questionable where people are living today. We, we see that we see that a lot in Riverhead talking with um, the first responders that go to on fire calls and ambulance calls. They see all kinds of things like that. And, you know, uh, you know, the town has said to report this, you know, but, but they're like, well, you know, they don't want people not to call an ambulance because they think they're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Living yeah, in, no, and, and it's certainly dwelling. a problem in Southampton town too. Can we get um, press releases all the time uh, from code enforcement that go into places where they have, uh, you know, extension cords for for you know basement apartments and things like that. So it's definitely this. By the way, uh, I should remind people this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. Bill Sutton is my co-host. We are with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Annette Hinkle, who's the Arts and Living Editor, uh, Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of RiverheadLocal.com, uh, and Brian Letta, who is staff writer at the Times Review Media Group. And I was going to say, this segs nicely into a conversation about um, a story that Brianne is working on this week, which is about affordable housing. And, and you know, I, I think affordable housing Obviously, it's been the conversation for 20 years, uh, but it's going to be the topic of the year, I think, in our region. Uh, we just had an Express Sessions event on Thursday, and it was actually about a completely different topic, which was, you know, the future of volunteer fire and ambulance. But as we said, every single one of these Express Sessions topics comes back to a conversation about affordable housing. And those folks said it, too, that affordable housing is is the the root of the crisis for why uh, they're having trouble finding volunteers as well. So talk about what your project um, has been and, and some of your work that came out this week about affordable housing in the Times Review uh, papers. 
Yeah, so um, affordable housing is a huge issue, not just in Southhold, but like I, I think it's an issue everywhere on Long Island right now. I'm in New York City metro area. Um, but it's been a topic of conversation at town board in the in recent weeks um, because there's a couple of developments on the table right now that they're discussing. Um, and I just noticed there was a lot of um, maybe confusion over what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in terms of like, can we restrict these developments to locals only? Um, and and like you you were saying before, uh, so many other issues that are discussions in town um, connect back to affordable housing. Uh, I reported on um, the shortage of firefighter and EMS volunteers over the summer. And one of the main reasons they said they were having issues recruiting and retaining um, volunteers is because of affordable housing. There just isn't a, enough affordable housing in the area. Um, and while it's reporting on this project, I was even um, hearing healthcare workers like doctors and nurses saying they were having a hard time staying in the area as well. And I actually interviewed a government employee who said he, he's thinking about leaving the North Fork. It's just getting too expensive to live here. And these are all the people that run your community, you know, and I feel like it's hard to walk down the street nowadays and not see a store that doesn't have a help wanted sign, you know? So, um, so there, there's just no place for people to live. So, and, and so, yet, so Brianna, I, 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 I'm going to go back to the, to the firefighters and, and ambulance workers. And that goes back to the, to the express sessions that we held. And, and in your story, you note that Southhold passed a local law that would, that would allow preference to be given to volunteer firefighters and ambulance workers um, for for affordable housing to be to be put on so so affordable housing when it's when it's built usually those units go to um, they go to a lottery and then people are picked from a lottery and the local law in Southhold would would give those firefighters a, a step up in in that lottery although some people are questioning and challenging whether that local law um, would would survive you know legal challenges or whatever. And that was something we had talked about at the express sessions was whether that was possible. And I know that the federal fair housing law comes into, into effect when there's, when there's federal money and subsidies that go to these, um, these, these affordable housing projects. And I'm just, I'm, it, it, it was curious because I didn't think you could give a preference to firefighters and ambulance workers. And, and I, I note that Southhold has, you know, has said that they would, would do this. Right. Yeah, that's actually, it's in Southhold town code. Like if you go read the affordable housing rules, there's an exception um, where they, where they do indicate a preference for emergency personnel living in Southhold town. Um, but there has been some question over whether that's even something they can have in their town code. Um, town board member, you know, Greg Dorotsky read at part, portions of a consultant's report that they hired like back in 2020 to evaluate if they can keep this um, in their code. And he said that this consultant kind of indicated that, hey, this isn't super kosher, maybe you should take it out of your town code, you know? So I'm not sure how they're going to tackle that or if it's just gonna stay there, but it's not super clear on whether 
they can have that um, preference in their town code. You know, there's a wrinkle here too, um, Brian. We had uh, Southampton Town Councilman Tommy John Schiavone and uh, East Hampton Town Councilman David Lease at our event on Thursday. And they said it is legal, but I think maybe the question is whether or not uh, it involves federal uh, and or state funds for the project. And it's interesting because, of course, this year uh, in November, the five towns are going to have the opportunity to vote for creating the community housing fund, which would use sort of the CPF mechanism to, to generate money for affordable housing projects. And I've raised the question and I've actually haven't had the chance to ask Assemblyman Fred Thiel yet, but I plan to. I wonder if you're using local funds in that manner, that, that the towns are actually collecting that money and not taking the federal money, if they may have more flexibility. Now, Tommy John and, and David both said they do have that ability to include some type of special uh, special uh, incentives incentives to, to allow people who are willing to be first responders. And also the point was made at, at our event for the existing first responders to find affordable housing because they're all having to move out for all the same reasons. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons they're having trouble getting membership. Devil's advocate, though, if you if you give a first responder a higher ranking and, and they get an affordable housing, and and then six months, a year later, they decide, you know, they can't or won't, you know, work for the fire department or ambulance company anymore. Uh, you know, what happens at that point? You're not going to take back that affordable housing, but they've had a preference then based on, um, you know, on on uh, on that volunteerism. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure it's been resolved yet. I think we're going to yeah. have to do a little more digging and, and try and get an answer to that. I'll, I'll say this. Ran, I the uh, one of the discussions decide this. When we have these express sessions events, uh, one of the things we really like about them is they spark little side discussions among the people who attend them. And one of the discussions that came up afterwards was the idea of the fire companies. And this is interesting. The fire companies themselves actually using their properties for affordable housing. Apparently, I'm told that initial investigations into that suggest it is legal. And of course, one of the problems that we have on the East End is finding locations to put affordable housing. It would be very interesting if a fire company, for instance, that has a property might be allowed to put up a small apartment building with five or six apartments with the idea being that they are the landlords and maybe they can require, you know, or they can give discounts to, to tenants who are willing to serve in the fire department. It's a creative idea at least. Yeah, maybe I, I haven't heard that come up and I'm not sure what the legalities would be in terms of that. Like um, I think like one discussion in Southold has been, can you limit these affordable housing developments if they're privately funded to just local residents. And it really depends who you talk to because a lot, a couple of like attorneys and lawyers have said, you know, there's no case law on the books preventing you from doing that per se, but it does open up potential for a lawsuit or it could open up potential for a lawsuit. There's that. 
federal fair housing laws are, are pretty uh, expansive, aren't they, Denise? I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of newspapers have run into trouble with just the wordings in ads and things that can get you in trouble for. Well, I mean, you know, there are protected classes and you can't discriminate against protected classes. And I don't think that, you know, in and of, the, in and of themselves, like things like you're not a resident of this town isn't that doesn't make you a you know a protected class i mean and also i mean anybody could sue about anything you know what i mean like i if you're gonna govern solely based on oh i'm afraid to do that we might get sued you won't do any like the government won't do anything um because you know they could be sued over anything really i mean i feel like somebody's got to bite the bullet and um, you know, and try that. And what if there's like, what if there's a federal law? Like, what if, what if this legislation that authorizes that? Then it wouldn't be necessarily just up to case law. If there was, you know, well written legislation either on the state or federal level right. that would allow that, I think that the towns would be on, you know, stronger ground. Um, so maybe that would be an avenue to, to pursue. I, I don't, I don't know, but might be something that comes out of these conversations for sure. Yeah. Brianne, Brianne, in your reporting, so the five towns have to put together plans that have to be put before the public in November in a referendum to approve the community housing fund, which would use a half percent transfer tax, uh, to fund affordable housing. And by the way, the point's been made that, had this been in place in Southampton town last year, it would have generated $25 million in one year for affordable housing measures. So we're talking about serious money. But Brian, I'm curious in Southhold, where are they in that process of putting a plan together? And I'm also just curious your take of whether you think it, a, a referendum like that has a good chance of passing in South in Southhold. So, as far as I know, they haven't really come up with a plan for that yet. Um, it came up briefly at the last town board work session, and they're, I think they're planning to come back to that discussion. Um, but I'm not sure how they're planning to approach this issue in November. Um, There's, there, in, your, in your reporting, Brian, there was just so much opposition to these these various affordable housing plans currently being proposed or proposed recently that that i would i would think that that if they have if there's a hope of the referendum being approved and i think you mentioned somebody in your story mentioned it that that there really has to be um you know the uh, an awareness on the public on on the on the, the 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 real the dire need for affordable housing yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know that there's an opposition to affordable housing per se, as so much as people like, like, uh, there's a lot of discussion about NIMBYism, you know, like, I'm not against affordable housing, but I'm against affordable housing in this specific location. Right. You know? um, I, th I think a lot of people do understand the need for affordable housing in South Holt Town, you know, everyone's kind of feeling it, I think. You know, you, you, spoke know to, you, you spoke to Michael Daly, who, who has formed the 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 YIMBY group opposed YIMBY. to the to the NIMBY group. And we love Michael Daly, um, you know, and, and I think that's his his points are, are important is you have to reverse that trend. You have to you know, you have to to get those people that don't want it near them. You have to help them to understand that 
that the only way to solve the problem big picture is is small picture allowing it locally in in your backyard what what i'm fascinated by though is denise we've talked about it a couple of times on the show in the past that riverhead might be a tough sell right now for the community housing fund because a lot of people who live in Riverhead feel like there's already plenty of affordable housing and a, a lot of new affordable housing going in in Riverhead, correct? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, that, 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 that's true. And um, I, they, the town board, um, at some point, somebody brought it up and they all seem to sort of grumble like, yeah, full fat chance, we're going to do that, you know. And there was no conversation about it. And there has been no discussion of this at all. Mm. Um, and, um, but, you know, <clears throat> and I, I like to bring this up, especially because it's sunshine week, right? So <laughs> Sunday. Next, next week, yes. Start sunshine week. Um, and this is a good topic. <laughs> but um, the, uh, you know, the town board in Riverhead, they've got this affliction. They don't really discuss anything. Things just sort of happen. Hmm. They show up on the, you know, on the on the meeting agendas, on their regular meetings. But like they have these work sessions that here and there they'll have presentations of this project or that project. And uh, they very rarely kind of like roll up their sleeves and have discussions of things like, you know, Brianne, like you're used to and seeing in South Hole um, and like it used to be in Riverhead. Um, and um, that's really unfortunate because conversations are had you know, very apparently offline um, in a way that I would say is of questionable legality under the open meetings law. But um, the um, supervisor has a weekly 15 minute uh, thing on a local radio station in Riverhead. And I tune into that when I can. And uh, last week she said that the town is planning to do um, something with that to provide with, with the housing fund to provide um, uh, ha uh, ownership opportunities. Right. Well, and, I think um, that's so. So what what with this plan and, and, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, big apartment buildings in you know, in, in Riverhead and, and in Southfield, we're talking about 15 or 16 unit developments or 20 unit developments or whatever, but also available under this, you know, through again, through a referendum would be first time homeowner. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, monies that, that would be available or money to convert accessory apartments so that you can be looking at one or one unit or two units or whatever. It doesn't have to be the, you know, I mean, people think about affordable housing and they think about, you know, the, the big buildings in Riverhead or, you know, or, or you know, 30 unit developments or whatever. And, and maybe that's more palpable for people in Riverhead. There, you know, and there, and there have been, I mean, there have been, and there should be, I mean, I think that's necessary. And Brianna, your story, you, uh, you pointed that out as well with yes. someone who said, you know, these apartments are okay when you're in your twenties, but you know, when you're going into your 30s, now you're getting married, you have a kid like, you know, these apartments are small. They're intentionally small because they don't want to house children because children are, you know, <laughs> no go. They don't <laughs> want kids um, because of school budgets, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I, my point there was that, like, I don't know what they're going to unroll, if anything, in Riverhead, if they've discussed it. But I aim to find out, like, I, I you know, I think. I think that would be uh, personally, I think that would be a good idea. We have we had two affordable housing developments built in Riverhead that are, you know, single family homes. Um, 
And um, they, they were not like perpetually affordable, like uh, since in other places have come up with ways to make that happen so that it's um, kind of like a windfall for the owner who got a house through an affordable housing lottery and it was affordable at the time. And now, you know, the house can be sold for, you know, $450,000 when they purchased it for, you know, 60 and it's now it's no longer an affordable uh, unit. Um, But $450 is affordable now. (laughs) I want to say too, Brianne, uh, talking to Assemblyman Thiel, I think he will say privately, and I'm guessing probably publicly soon enough, that that he would really like the focus to be on using existing stock uh, mm-hmm. for affordable housing and, and trying to make houses affordable throughout the region through this program by, by you know with creative ways like maybe having the towns uh, come in as a fifty percent buyer for property to lower a mortgage payment for somebody to make existing housing that the focus shouldn't necessarily be all on building new houses it's also about making the existing housing um you know affordable but well, they, can, I, they can have half my house i'll tell you, I, I volunteer <laughs> right this right now i'm willing to take you want to come in yeah. you want to come in and buy half please do yes i'm willing to take on a part but brian <laughs> you know the, the the bottom line here that i find really interesting is fred thiel has been working for something like 12 or 13 years on this legislation finally got it through Albany, has it before the towns and the voters now. And I think there's a really reasonable chance that the voters will not approve these funds after for 20 years talking about why doesn't somebody do something about affordable housing? But when when it comes to the wheels hitting the road to talk about actual projects, people are getting cold feet now and we may lose an opportunity to address the affordable housing issue um, because of of uh, all of these concerns that you're just like the ones you're hearing in Southold right now. So, Joe, can I ask you a question? Um, so in, with this new um, tax that they're looking at putting on, uh, does the, ta- the towns have to come up with sort of viable ways that they would use that money before the referendum? Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah I mean, to, I think they have, have, to, have, they have to have a written plan, a, a exactly. plan that says this is what we would do. This is what we would do with the money that the voters would would have something specific to approve that it wouldn't right. just be an open ended. We'll figure out how we spend the money later. They need to have a plan of attack for how it would be spent. You know, it was interesting. I remember this coming up when um, Cape Advisors was renovating the big bowl of a factory in Sac Harbor to be luxury condos. And there was a lot of people. Um, wanting affordable housing in that building. And the uh, the Cape Advisors people actually did give a certain amount of money that went into a fund, although I don't know if anything was much was done with the fund. But one of the big issues that came up in that project was that because it was a, a condominium, it's like even if you could make apartments, quote unquote, affordable, you couldn't exempt the affordable tenants from paying the same amount in um, maintenance fees or association fees. And it was insane. You know, you can imagine how much they charge for that. So by its very nature, um, it wouldn't have been affordable. So I think a lot of people don't even understand how that works. Like, oh, you're building a condo. Why can't you make half of those affordable? And there is a reason because I guess by law, you can't charge those tenants less for the um, association fees. So interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's what I remember. Brianne, Brianne that, my, my bottom line point here is I think everybody complains about it. 
And I'm still not sure they're going to take the option that's on the table to try and address it right now because of all of these other concerns. I mean, like, I don't have a good gauge on the sentiment towards this right now because it really hasn't been much of a conversation. Um, but I feel like I'm a little, I feel a little more optimistic that people would approve a plan. I think, I think that people like understand that there's a need for affordable housing, you know, and especially if the town works with people and finding a solution that like fits the community and their needs. I think that there's, they have a shot at passing it. It, it has been the one issue that unites everybody. I feel like on the entire East End, everybody agrees we have a crisis, but yeah. uh, you know, the devil's in the details, I guess. And, and yeah. Um, it's, I think it's good that we have an option on the table. It's going to be a really interesting year to see how all the different towns come up with plans for using what could be a real steady windfall of money coming in to, to address the problem. So it's going to be a, a great story to watch throughout the year. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, I'm your co-host along with Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Annette Hinkle. Uh, we also have Denise Civiletti from RiverheadLocal.com and Brianne Letta from uh, the Times Review Media Group. Uh, Annette, I want to go to you real quick, uh, change gears and, and talk about a really nice feature of it you did this week on a real towering figure in, in theater and uh, movies uh, who passed away uh, last week, um, and had a real deep Sag Harbor connection, right? Yeah, this is, we're talking about Tony Walton. Um, Tony died on March 2nd at the age of 87. And, um, Tony Walton was a production designer, costume designer extraordinaire. Um, he won, um, he won, um, Emmys, he won Tony's, he won Academy Awards for his work, um, for his scenic work. And he was just a really great guy. He, uh, he and his wife, um, Jen, Leroy Walton lived in Sag Harbor for many years. Um, Tony's first wife was Julie Andrews and their daughter, um, Emma, was the one of the co-founders of the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor with her husband and Sybil Christopher. So um, so a very big, big personality, big presence um, in, on the world stage of, of entertainment, but also in Sag Harbor. And um, and Tony was just an amazing, amazing guy. Um, I got to know him a little bit just from my uh my travels around Sag Harbor and, and he was always looking for inspiration for his designs. And it was great. Cause you never knew when you were going to see Tony sort of studying something on the street for some upcoming production. And, um, when I wrote, I wrote the book on the Sag Harbor cinema after the fire. And I talked to Tony about that to see if he had any memories of the cinema. Um, and other than the smell of the old cinema, which everybody noted, cause it was always moldy and weird. Um, he noted, he noted that when he designed the, the sets for, um, the, the Broadway show Chicago, he actually used the art deco letters on the facade of the Sag Harbor cinema for inspiration in how those letters look, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so I, I kind of tucked that into the obituary and it was, it was great because I got a note from his daughter, Emma saying that she did, had never even really heard that story. That so, was an um, amazing little tidbit. I, it's I, kind I, of fun. Right? And one day when I was working at the uh, Sag Harbor express office, you know, Tony, um, Emma, Emma and Julie Andrews do, uh, these series of children's books. And they had one about this dump truck called Dumpy the Dump Truck. And Tony would do the illustrations for it. So it was very much a sort of a family affair. Um, and 
he um, it was sort of set in a Sag Harbor light location. And one day I was working at the express office and Tony walks in and asks if he can look around. I'm like, oh, OK, what's going on here? And so he's kind of studying the office. And, uh, and I asked if he was perhaps doing another dumpy the dump truck book and there was going to be a newspaper setting. And he's like, you'll see, you'll see. And it turns out, of course, there was a newspaper pa- uh, newspaper setting in the, the, the newest book. And and it was such a great illustration because he had all the little NIPA awards on the wall and there was a Brian Boyd hand like figure brian of course being publisher at the time um and it was just an adorable illustration but the thing about tony that was so great is like after the book was published he brought me in one of the galleys of that page and signed it for me so i have that um which i thought was just he was just really thoughtful like that and just really um you know just i don't know he just always made you feel like he he remembered details about conversations that you had with him and um he was just a, a really wonderful wonderful guy and um Always one made you things, feel. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. One of the things that makes this region so amazing is he was deeply involved in the local arts community, right? He he mm-hmm. worked. I mean, here's a here's a guy who's worked on Broadway, won Emmys, he's worked in movies, won Academy Awards, and he was working with uh, Guild Hall and with Bay Street, right? Yeah, he did. But Bay Street, of course, Emma, you know, his daughter was one of the founders. So he actually did the set for the very first show at Bay Street in 1992, which was Men's Lives, based on the Peter Matheson book about the Baymen. And um, I guess from from, Tony went down and found an old dory on the beach that had been like sort of half buried. So they dragged that thing onto the stage. And so it actually functioned as the set piece. So uh, he did he did a number of um, of production designs for Bay Street for that. Uh, for those shows. And then in Guildhall, he actually directed a few plays over there. Um, and so it was really, you know, yeah, it was kind of a, a great opportunity to sort of bring this, this very world renowned collection of, of actors and uh, production designers and directors to, uh, to come and apply their trade for the local um, population, which is kind of unique. I'm imagining in the world of uh, entertainment. Tony had been ill um, and this past summer or fall, uh, the Sag Harbor community had a chance to sort of come together and and really pay tribute to him, right? I think I think that was uh, it, it's wonderful that that they had the, the chance to to say some things to Tony, uh, you know, personally. Yeah, I think in late in in late August, uh, Bay Street Theater um, hosted an evening to sort of honor him and, you know, stories and music uh, about his career. And then in December, uh, the Mark Borgie Gallery in Sag Harbor mounted a retrospective of his design. So very cool show. I think it had over 100 pieces um, of these are sketches of costumes and sets and um, sort of all of the all of the collection of uh, of things that he had done over the years. So that was on view just until like early February. Um, but I guess that Tony had had a stroke in the fall. So, um, so his death came as a sort of complications from the stroke and um, he was in at his apartment in the city when he passed away. So um, I, I have to say he left this world surrounded by his friends and family in the room. And for the last six months, the community paying tribute to his life and work. If there's such thing as a good death, I think he really had it. I think he he left this world knowing, I think, what his family and the entire community thought of him. So um, he's definitely going to be missed. No question. It was a big part of the community here. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to change topics and, and talk about uh, Ukraine a little bit. Uh, we had a story this week, Bill. Uh, where we profiled uh, a local teenager and her mom 
who are Ukrainian citizens who are here. And uh, they played a central role in a rally that was held uh, in East Hampton last week. And uh, we also just did a deeper dive into who she is or who these, this family is and what their circumstances are. And it, it really does just drive home the point that this war that's happening half a world away really does have big repercussions here. Absolutely. Um, Michelle Troy just uh, knocked the story um, out, out of the park. Great, great, great story. I hope I don't butcher her name. 12 year old Vera Palomarchuk. Um, and she talked about I, I think the thing that struck me the most, she's she's um, she's in East Hampton and, and Montauk. And, and I think the, the thing that struck me the most is she her father is is, is still in Ukraine. And, um, you know, she she talked about feeling guilty about being here and being safe when he so stayed many, to fight. Right. Right. When, when so many of, of her friends and relatives are, are, are still over there in, in the midst of this war um, and, and not. And, and she sits here not knowing, um, you know, whether they're alive or dead, um, you know, what's happening um, and, and feeling guilty about that. Um, it, it, it really and the, and the story talks about her and, and, and her mother, um, but also, again, how the, the community is is coming together to um, to support people of Ukraine. There was a there was a a, a collection drive to um, collect needed supplies um, that, that's going to be sent over there. And um, Rocco Carrera from Carrera Wealth Partners is is also going to be sending care packages to um, to the men fighting over there, which which um, I, I thought was really interesting. Just just a fabulous story. It's on, on 27 East right now if, if people want to want to look at it. And it, it just really humanizes, um, you know, the conflict that we're all looking at, um, you know, in, in the headlines and, and on TV every day. And, and it's, it's our local neighbors that are that are being affected by this. And Denise, you, you've written about this too, right? There's a lot of local efforts. I, it's amazing to me how the community has, has rallied to, to gather supplies and, and donations uh, for the effort that's happening all over the region. The, yeah, the, the, the pastor at the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church in Riverhead um, said uh, at Mass on Sunday, uh, which I attended, that um, the church had been hoping to fill up one they had like a they have like a large cargo van and they'd been hoping to fill up one cargo van with supplies and things um by friday by that friday before and instead they had filled it up four times wow. and were, were driving and he he himself had made one of the trips into new jersey to i guess a drop-off point where then it's going to be shipped to uh ukraine um, so, you know, he said the response was really overwhelming. Um, but I mean, it absolutely, you know, it drives home the fact that there are all of these people who live in our communities that, you know, it's, they have relatives there. I mean, that pastor's parents are, are living yeah. there still, you know, um, Steve Wick had an excellent story in this week's news review about a woman uh, named Anna Marinik. Um who um, she's in Riverhead now, uh, but she walked 16 hours uh, to reach Poland um, from Ukraine. She she had told us at the rally that took place that she was the only uh, member of her family that had a green card 
and uh, hope to enter the United States and, and, and hoping to be able to bring her family here to safety. Um, so, you know, there are things like that that are just, you know, vivid here in the local community. Um, a local uh, uh, brewer is um, has joined an international effort to uh, raise money for humanitarian aid to Ukraine that's been organized by a Ukrainian brewery that uh, became world famous for a minute when uh, it's it ceased brewing its beer in order to uh, make Molotov cocktails to help the, the, the war effort. Um, but now it's published some um, recipes for beers uh, and it's invited breweries around the world to join this effort by brewing one of those beers and um, uh, selling them and, and donating the proceeds to uh, the Ukrainian relief effort that this brewing company in Ukraine is organized, uh, has organized. Cool and, and so, yeah, yeah so awesome. uh, Trade Winds Brewery, um, Duffy Griffith, uh, Trade Winds Brewery on uh, West Main Street. It's right next to Diggers off of uh, Griffin Avenue is uh, brewing this beer now. It's going to be available for the first time for sale on um, Friday, March 18th. Um, which I think is the day before the Riverhead Ale Trail Leprechaun <laughs> Crawl. Or, uh, Good timing. Brewery Crawl, yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's going to be a popular, cultures. I suspect it'll be a popular yeah. choice. I, these stories are all just a just a reminder that uh, we all care and we're all affected, but there are those among us who are directly affected by this war that's happening in Ukraine and they're part of our community too. So uh, there's good reason to support them. So we are out of time on Behind the Headlines this week. Uh, I want to thank my three panelists, Annette Hinkle, uh, Denise Civiletti, and Brianne Letta for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, Bill Sutton, my co-host. Thank you, Bill. I'll see you back here next week. Great. Fantastic show, guys. Thanks a lot. And we'll see everybody else. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll uh, talk with you again next week on Behind the Headlines. Mm-hmm.